out. The test is over. Goodness me. Wow. That was a beauty. It is out. And here he goes. This delivery has him using the bowl. On the front foot with Brian Waddle and Jeremy Coney, powered by Newstalk ZB and iHeartRadio. Hello, on the front foot this week, the last international game of a disjointed summer brought down the curtain on the stellar career of Ross Taylor. Taylor gets a ball which has him driving down the ground and he's hit it pretty well. It's going to the fence for four and Ross Taylor has his 17th Test Match 100. I'm proud that we're on, on moving on. The team's in a, in a fantastic place. Um, I think we've got some great young cricketers coming through and you know I see I see this team getting better and better over the, the coming years and I look forward to watching from afar at their growth as well. A day earlier the Women's World Cup produced an exciting entertaining final but ultimately a predictable winner. 2020 World Cup we played our best game on the biggest stage and I think today we've done a very similar thing and that's a really really impressive thing for, from our team is to not get scared or, or fear the big stage in big moments we want to be part of it and, and that's what really drives us. And coach Gary Stead gives an initial analysis of the season. I'm still proud of the way that we're putting teams together now. We've got 12 guys over in the IPL and we can still put out an, an extremely competitive team and I think that's about building our depth. A coach's analysis and we all have different viewpoint. Jeremy Coney joins me once again as usual on the front foot. How do you assess the season? Jerry? can you give it marks out of 10? Well, I think there were parts of it that were much more successful. Brian, hello to you. Than other parts, really. Gary Stead kind of, you know, matches it up pretty much as I feel about it too in the sense that the World Cup itself, if you take that as the start of it all, probably went a little bit better than expected getting through to the final. I think that's fair. I think we scraped through India, to be honest. Uh, Getting a draw, however, was a good result as far as New Zealand were concerned convincingly beaten in the second, where the ball bounced and turned a little bit more. And um, then I thought the New Zealand component was a bit more disappointing than Gary said. Uh, I thought that we perhaps could have done better, particularly against Bangladesh. And then to lose it in the manner that we did to South Africa in the second test match of that series, I thought was pretty poor as well. So back to the coach, Gary Stead. How does he reflect on the season generally? It's been interesting, hasn't it? We we went from a, the highs, I guess, of a T20 um, World Cup final over in Dubai and went to India and had a um, to get a, a drawn test out of there was great. But then home and, and missing out on a couple of tests is probably the I guess the low light of it for us. But it's very, very difficult to, to continue to win all the time. And that's just the, I guess, nature of sport as well. And um, I'm still proud of the way that we're putting teams together now. We've got 12 guys over in the IPL and we can still put out an, an extremely competitive team. And I think that's about building our depth. Um, what it will create is some very, very tough conversations, I think, to come when it comes to nailing down uh, our, our World Cup teams and, and what they actually will be in the future. But I think that's exciting for us and it's in a good, good place to be in still. Gary, um, how demanding has the year been, bearing in mind uh, the things that have gone against what would have been your initial planning, that there have been things beyond your control, haven't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the COVID bubble sort of situation has been mentally pretty taxing on on everyone. Um, I think we've started to see the 
the likes of squads interchanging at different times, and that that creates some, I guess, some logistical problems at times. But um, yeah, I mean, we're not complaining. We're still some of the lucky ones that are still playing international cricket, and um, there's a lot of people that haven't been able to do that or travel around the world. And, and we've still been lucky, and we're still proud that we can get out there to represent New Zealand. You talked about the difficulty of the picking sides. You've got one to pick pretty shortly, haven't you, to go to England. And that, of course, encompasses all forms of the game. So I guess that's not an easy task as well. Uh, No, it's not. But, um, yeah, it'll be a real jigsaw puzzle as it was last year. Um, So I I think you'll see that there's some different uh, different looking players across all three formats in the next four or five months for New Zealand. Um... And I'm sure, well, I'm pretty certain that's going to become the norm more and more now as the international schedule. I think we'll get more packed as we try and catch up on some of the, I guess, losses that we've had through COVID. Uh, So I'm pretty sure that that will happen. But you're right, Wads, we've got that uh, test match team that's coming up soon. And and Gav and I will get together tomorrow morning and and hopefully nail that and with a view to probably having it, I think, announced in the next couple of weeks. And Kane Williamson, how much was his availability through injury missed? He's one of our great batsmen, so he'll always be missed. Um, but but we still maintain that it was the right thing by Kane, and it'll be the right thing by us in the long term. So um, if the difficulty was that, and, and I guess the catch-22 is Kane comes back early, scores 100, and his elbow's gone again, and then would be in the same place. So we're still we're still comfortable in the decision that's been made. I mean, any team with Kane Williamson in it looks, I think, slightly stronger than one without him in it. So that, that's, that's a good place. But look, I mean, again, Kane, Kane's, uh, like any of us, needs breaks at certain times. And he, he's dying to play cricket for New Zealand again. I can absolutely assure you of that. Uh, but he, yeah, he, he will, we can't burn him out in the future. We actually have to be smart around those things. And how is he progressing injury-wise? Yeah, everything's going to plan in terms of how he's feeling and how he's preparing. Um, I, I didn't see what he scored overnight, haven't looked at that yet, but sounds like it wasn't too many, so he'll probably be disappointed with that. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he's, he's going well, he's on track, he's where we want him to be, um, with, a, I guess, our view still is, is getting him ready for the Test Match Series in England. Brian Waddle, Jeremy Coney, yes, on the front foot. But to lose two tests at home on grounds that New Zealand uh, pride themselves in their ability to play at Bay uh, Oval and at uh, Hagley, that to me was below their best as far as I was concerned. And, you know, played six, one, two, lost three, drew one is, is, is not a pass mark in terms of the test season. No, I don't think so. I think... Um... I think we're finding out that those two tests in New Zealand that you talk about are both on pitches that are slightly drier, that our bowlers are kind of a wee bit found out. If there's not enough pace in the pitch or there's not enough grass on the pitch, that the ball doesn't nibble round so much, that we've then we're found out because we don't have the real pace or the spin option. So we are all in a tight little band. I know we've got left armers in Bolton Wagner and that Jameson's a bit taller than perhaps the rest, but that's the kind of variety. And we then drop short a little bit more and we end up bowling lots and lots and lots of overs, don't we? 176 overs at Bangladesh. 
And then they bowl us out quite quickly with medium paces themselves. It didn't kind of make sense. So I felt that the bowlers were a bit found out in those two losses and our lower order batting, middle and lower order batting, were just brushed aside. I thought they played loosely once the top order, a few of the top order had done okay. Yeah, that's going to be a concerning point for New Zealand uh, moving forward too, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we have in the past been successful with our lower order partnerships, generally led by BJ Watling in uh, times past. But, you know, you look at the the last three or four, Henry's a capable enough batsman and may or may not be there. But Southie, Wagner, Bolt uh, are not really players possessing batting credentials to provide good, substantial partnerships at the bottom of the order. No, well, if you look at Jameson's figures with the bat also, Brian, th- there was a man who was, st- was scoring 40s if the top order did the job and so on. But now... He has also joined that that lower order group, and he's getting single figures quite quite regularly, and, and that's a bit of a concern because I think there was the potential that we saw of him becoming actually an all rounder, uh, you know, a genuine kind of bowling all rounder to bat at maybe number seven. Well, he's just not getting those figures uh, in the last sort of season that he carried. The, the previous season. So that's a bit of a disappointment as well. Yeah, that's the sort of second season scenario to some extent, isn't it, where yeah, it uh, you get worked out a little bit and uh, with both bat and ball. Yeah, I think you can. Other, other sides look at him and they're now bowling a lot more short at him. He's getting caught, being hooked and those, you know, hooking them and, and so on quite regularly now. So... Yeah, there, there are some issues, I think, that need to be solved. Some of the uh, top performers, well, uh, looking at the, at the stats generally, Latham was the top run scorer across all the uh, forms of cricket that were played, and uh, he got 776 runs. And uh, Southie took the most wickets, played 15 of the 24 games that New Zealand played in, in all formats, and took 36 wickets. And, and I suppose that is indicative of their contribution I suppose if you're looking ahead to uh, a player of the year to win the Hadley uh, medal, it could possibly be either Latham or Southey. Um I haven't really looked into those kinds of things, but they have been the consistent performance, haven't they? Yeah, well, Southey, uh, if you start, if I start with him, just my memory was I thought he had a pretty good T20 campaign. Perhaps the final found him out a little bit, uh, but he was bowling then, of course, second, and the dew comes on and so on. So that that was quite an issue in that tournament. I thought he bowled brilliantly in the test matches. I watched those test matches and commented on them um, over in India. I thought he really got the ball to move around. He created difficulties for Shubman Gill and for Agarwal. Uh, who were the openers, and then, of course, when Pujara came in, all of them ha- had difficulty with him, and he went short at them, and he was bowling in humid conditions at one Katie, uh in the second test, and I thought, even though he didn't get wickets, I thought he bowled brilliantly. So I thought he's done that well. When he came back to New Zealand, not quite the results, certainly against you know Bangladesh in the second test in Christchurch, 
and in that first test match against South Africa, where you got the normal Hagley conditions, he usually thrives in those. But as soon as it gets a bit drier and as soon as the, the movement isn't there, uh, I think Tim Southey just goes to other things and he didn't quite get the results he would have liked. So it was a wee bit up and down, but when it was good, it was very good. As far as Latham is concerned, good in India in that very in that first test. He got a 90-odd. Um, didn't go so well in the, in the second test, I think, just from memory. And didn't get runs against South Africa, did he? And that was some of the issue uh, until the yeah, two, he got, got 250, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. 252 against uh, Bangladesh. Some of the uh, the highlights of the year, there are other things. We only played three uh, one dayers and they were against the Netherlands and we won three. Uh, T20s, the emergence of uh, Mitchell was uh, significant. Conway played an important part too. And I suppose the one highlight of uh, the T20 competition from uh, the World T20 Championship was the way we got to uh, the final in that game and also the defeat of India, reducing them to 110 for seven off the 20 overs, memorable parts of the T20 summer. Yeah, I think that certainly that India game became very important after New Zealand lost to Pakistan, if you remember, in the first match. And certainly all the bowlers, that was at Dubai, and India uh, batted for New Zealand, won the toss, didn't they? And put them in during the day and, and the ball gripped a wee bit and, you know, Bolt got wickets. And I remember Santner bowled really a very good economic spell, I think, for sort of none for 15. And everyone else picked up wickets around that. So an excellent work from the bowlers in that match, only chasing 110. And uh, New Zealand you know, lost a couple of wickets, didn't they? Mitchell got a few runs. Um, and in fact, they all did. Uh, Williamson got a 30-odd and Conway was not out too. So that was a comprehensive victory. And, and I thought the other good match for New Zealand was, was the game against India in the uh, England in the semi-final. They were chasing something like 170 or 165, something like that, which was the largest total they'd had to chase. And it was a close match. And England had sudden problems when Nisham got stuck in during those death overs and hit them for three or four sixes. And, and, and they had nowhere to go. And Morgan was lost, basically. You don't often see Owen Morgan lost, but he was a bit. And so that was a very good victory, I thought. Um, but then in the final, you know, Aussie just outplayed us and had a bit of luck with the, with the toss. Yep, and uh, I suppose the only other thing that we can talk about in the uh, the summer that has gone was uh, our mystery man, Ajaz Patel, 10 for 119 in the Indian Test match. And you know, we'll probably have a look next week at uh, the likely makeup of a side to go to England for the Test Series there. I wonder whether he will be considered. Oh, he's got to be. You've got to take uh, in three Test matches. I know that they're in June. But you've got to take Ajaz Patel. You must take spinners along. He is the best spinner. He's proved that by far in New Zealand at the moment. His 10 wickets has to be a highlight. Um, I find it, you know, it's very difficult to understand, I think, for a lot of cricket followers that, that the very next match he doesn't make the side. And that's in one of our drier surfaces on the coast 
and the warmer places in Tauranga, it's a, it's a pitch that you need to have a spinner. Uh, in year 11, they picked Ravindra. They wanted a batsman who could be a part-time spinner instead of picking a full-time spinner. And I, I think Patel should always be an addition with our size. On the front foot with Waddle and Coney. A final international farewell for Ross Taylor 16 years after he made his ODI debut at McLean Park on March the 1st, 2006. 16 years ago. Making his test debut 20 months later at Wanderers in Johannesburg. Remarkable longevity in the game and statistical achievement to prove his greatness. After the final over against the Dutch, Ross Taylor sat down with his teammates in what Gary Stead says was a relaxing evening for the players with some emotion. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it a few times before and, and probably been through it myself in my own career. So um, I guess I, I have an understanding of what he was like. But look, at the end of the night, I, I've never seen Ross so content and happy in what he was doing. And, um, and I think that speaks for the, the decision that he's got to. And I think that's important that he, he walks away in a happy place. Look, I mean, he, he's definitely one of New Zealand's greats, without a doubt. Uh, it's very hard to, to compare eras and decades of, of different people. But, I mean, his, his statistics alone speak for themselves. So he's certainly right up there. A few kind words there from Gary Stead on the commitment and the contribution that Ross Taylor has made. You look at... Um, Stats and they always tell a pretty good story. But you know, 450 games that he's played for New Zealand in international games, 18,000 international runs. The only cricketer to make 100 appearances in each of the three international formats. Uh, but wonderful memories. He, he's one of the greats of our game. Has to be Brian. Um a career spanning the length that it did, 16 years. Um, a man who, um, I, was it his first ODI wads? Were you there, were you there up in, in Napier when he got that 100 against, was it Sri Lanka? Um, yeah, it was his third know, ODI. Was it? Yeah, I know it was early on. Yeah. But, you know, the, a man with the most tests for New Zealand, isn't he? Uh, most test mm-hmm. runs, most tests with Daniel Vittori. I think they're even, aren't they? Um, yes. And then he's got the most ODI runs as well uh, from from a New Zealander. Um, he's, Fleming, he passed Fleming. I think Fleming's about five or 600 less. Um, Taylor played 40 games less than Stephen Fleming. And then I think if you put it into context, you, I know you're a great fan of Astle. Um, he played 13 games less than, than Ross Taylor, but he's got 1,520 runs, I think, about less in ODIs than Ross Taylor did. So that's where Taylor sits. He has uh, provided us with some wonderful memories, and, and I'm not sure which is the one that sits uh, foremost for me, uh, you've got to remember that 290 at the Wacker, even though it was a good batting surface, it's an outstanding batting achievement to score a double 100, to score 290 and, and to, to get up around that 300 mark. That was a, a remarkable innings that I was lucky enough to witness. And the other one that uh, I remember quite vividly is uh, the 154 he got 
against England at Old Trafford in the early stages of his a career when New Zealand got beaten by uh, England. Monty Panesar bowled us out, but uh, that was a quality innings at Test match level anyway by Ross Taylor uh, amongst his, his 19 centuries. Yeah, well, the, the 290 wads, what people forget is that Australia scored five, over 560 or something like that in their first innings. And when you go out to bat with that total ahead of you, it's very easy to crumble at some stage through your innings. The 560 just kind of, you know, imposes itself upon you. And it doesn't take much to suddenly lose one or two wickets and suddenly the pressure's on. So that's where that innings of 290 just kept, just kept knocking that thought away. And he played, he had a lot of boundaries. You can imagine that in 290. And to bat for nine hours plus, which he did in that innings, in the heat at Perth, is a pretty good effort as well. As I say, that he's a quietly spoken man, isn't he? I, uh, that's how I oh, my word, yes. think of it. And very polite, um, loves his red wine, uh, determined, obviously, as I've said, competitive, strong character, um, a smiling assassin in a way because he just puts you away nicely, doesn't he? But to be able to just, when you think about returning to a side and sitting in the same changing room after losing a cap, losing the captaincy and to sit quietly there and accumulate his runs and hold his catches. And when he lost his sight with Terigium and then having to go through that and then returning again and the runs coming back again, the catches being held again. I think it says a lot about the man and, yeah, look, he was an attacking player. I don't think people realised how quickly and his strike rates that he had was. I mean, he he scored at a decent clip. Let me go back to one of my favourite innings in one-day cricket, to Dunedin, against England. This delivery has him oh. wide down the leg side, oh. and that's a wide. That's not how to bowl to him. 150 partnership between the pair with that uh, wide. 135 balls in 99 minutes. Another outstanding performance by this pair in this series. Here's Wood bowling to Taylor and Taylor slogs it and gets an edge. Down on the boundary for four. New Zealand's 250 and that's the highest one day score for uh, Ross Taylor. Previously 131. He's now got 132 and it's been a quality innings again. Taylor waiting. Here's Rashid Bowles to him, and this one has him hitting high and wide. That is six. A big one. Well, someone's just running out from the grandstand. They've got keys in their hand, and I think it's the keys to Dunedin City. I honestly do. I think Taylor is the hero of the of the town at the moment. That is a very big and confident hit. Here he's bowling to Taylor, and Taylor drives out towards the backward point region, racing away towards the boundary, and knocked oh, over the boundary by the fieldsman. That's 150 for Ross Taylor. Absolutely amazing. Taylor in strike on 159. On one leg. Wokes close to the stumps this time. He's hit the ball in the air. Over the top of long on for six. Massive shot. It was in the slot. But my word, he got all of that. Full toss. And Taylor has belted it over long on for six. It was a poor delivery. He missed his length. And Taylor is in such imperious form, he has hit that probably 80, 90 metres 
and New Zealand now needs seven from uh, 11. Nichols on seven in strike to Curran. And this is down the leg side. He's belted it over mid-wicket for six. That is emphatic. And New Zealand win a record victory at the University of Otago Oval. And they maintain their unbeaten record. They have won all seven one-day internationals here. And I suspect this is of the highest quality of them all. New Zealand finish at 339 for five. That was a memorable day, Jerry. 181 of 147 balls won that game for New Zealand against England on University Oval. Most certainly. Um, they're playing against a pretty strong English side, actually. And England had made 340, something like that. It was a jolly imposing total. And New Zealand lost their first two wickets, what, for naught? I think Gupta was out very quickly. And then, and then, and suddenly Ross was in. And, and it looked like, it looked like uh, Alaska, the total. It, that's how far away it was. And he just started and he got better and he got better and he got better. Then he pulled a hamstring, if you remember. You were there with me. We were both wa- there watching that game. Yep. So then he moved into just hitting boundaries and he hit sixes. I don't know how many of them. He had plenty of fours. It's an intimate kind of ground, you'd have to say. If you found a gap, then it was through. But he just timed the ball beautifully that day, and he then he found a partner with Latham, didn't he? Yeah, after a partnership with uh, Williamson that saw them through to oh, 86, uh, and uh, then it was the, the big partnership uh, with, with Latham. Taylor hit 17 fours and six sixes in, in yeah. that innings. Um, yeah. Remarkable. I, I mean, it, it was it was, and on one leg, a lot of it, um, and people you could see the crowd just get involved and say, "Here, well, we're watching something special here." And there are uh, other innings as well. One I remember, and we watched it, was the seventy-four he got in the World Cup semi-final against India at Old Trafford. It came off ninety balls, and I remember feeling embarrassed after that when New Zealand won the game because. I think both of us had sort of commented that Taylor and Williamson had batted so slowly. There was no way they were going to put any scoreboard pressure on the the Indians. And yet they read the pitch and the game perfectly in that game. And, uh, you know, the second day they came out, New Zealand were 239 for five with about seven overs to go. Uh, no, two hundred. They were two hundred and eleven, weren't they? And then they uh, ended up getting two hundred and thirty-nine, I think. But that was a special performance, and it wasn't one of those big hundreds, was it? Well, New Zealand lost wickets early there again, I think, and suddenly it was a it was a sort of let's fix this up kind of job. And once again, it was Williamson and Taylor. Uh, and and they were going quite slowly, but we didn't. I don't think we factored in the pitch quite well enough, and that it was nibbling a little bit, and it wasn't quite as easy as we felt. They did score quite briskly, if you remember, on that second morning of a one-day game, and um, they they got the score running quite nicely. Um, but that but that seventy-four that he got, can't remember what Williamson got wads, but. Um, 
you know, the 239 I always felt against India might not have – I think that was our feeling, that 239, 240 wasn't going to really test what we saw as a, quite a strong Indian batting lineup. But when they were three, for, three out for one or something like that, suddenly we were back in the match. Brian Waddle, Jeremy Coney, yes, on the front foot. Cricket fans have enjoyed an outstanding month of cricket as the Women's World Cup continued through six venues and delivered a final of the highest quality. And fancy scoring 148 not out, as Nat Serber did, and be on the losing side and by 71 runs. Such was the power of the Australian game and such was the quality of the final. Former White Fern Debbie Hockley had a front seat in the commentary box during the Women's World Cup. She joins us once again on the front foot. And Debbie, I'm sure you must have enjoyed not only the tournament, but certainly that final. It was worthy of the name final, wasn't it? Oh, kia ora, Brian. Um, yes, it was. Gosh, it was just absolutely magnificent. And and I'm pleased that you mentioned that, Siva, because I think, well, you know, in what other game in a Cricket World Cup final could you be left 148 not out and not only be on the losing side, but basically I felt so sorry for her because she was, she was the, <clears throat> she was, at the end of the game, out there on the pitch, didn't even end up getting her fantastic contribution acknowledged because, of course, it was the end of the game and the Australians were going crazy. So I think the the quality of cricket on show um, for that wonderful crowd in Canterbury who supported who supported both teams when there was probably no affiliation to either team for a lot of those people. It was just a, it was a magnificent day's cricket, and uh, you know Australia really were worthy champions. They they deserve to win, but the calibre of the cricket on show was um, was so worthy of a final. It was a lovely way to finish the tournament. Yeah, and through the tournament as well, there were varying standards of performance. There were some ups and downs for, for sides, but the general quality, I think, was uh, of attractive, entertaining style and a desire to really deliver a good product. Yeah, I think that that's that's an excellent summary. I think that um, you know there were 31 matches throughout the whole tournament, and I was uh, having a count the other day. Five of those matches weren't decided until the last over of the game. And I think, look, even that that very first game between um, New Zealand White Ferns and West Indies, where basically it wasn't decided until the last over, and for all intents and purposes, it looked like New Zealand was going to win because they needed six runs, had three wickets in hand, and then Deandra Dos and basically said, give me the ball, and she proceeded to, in effect, win the game for them. I think, you know, same same thing in the first two of the first three games of the tournament, there were four centuries scored, so it, it, set, it set the bar high. There were some performances which were probably a little bit disappointing for some of the sides, but equally, I think the amount of excitement um, that was generated from watching some of those games uh, was was wonderful for perhaps people who hadn't seen much women's cricket played. And, and I think when you get a tournament that comes down to your fourth semi-finalist not being decided until the last ball of the last group match, that was the game between South Africa and India, then I think, you know, from an excitement value, it really had it all. And I guess you find out, too, whether people are interested in the women's game by those you talk to in the street. And there was certainly a lot of talk 
out and about because the game was visible. Even though people weren't able to go there, they were able to see it on Sky and that seemed to have a wide coverage. And, you know, there was plenty to talk about for the the cricket fans. Yes, and I, I, I absolutely love that and I agree with you. that I've said many times, people would have heard me say, it was, a, it was an absolute miracle that this tournament actually was able to take place, um, you know, during a global pandemic and in the middle of New Zealand's Omicron outbreak. But as I said to people, look, even though we couldn't have crowds for a start, at least every single match was on, uh, was televised. And I think that that really uh, captured the imagination of lots of people who may never have seen uh, women's cricket on TV. I certainly had uh, a couple of people come up to me, both men, which, which doesn't, it's neither here nor there, but to me it's always lovely when men who perhaps might not have appreciated the skills that, that women's cricketers might have had, they just said, oh, did you see that game? It was just so engrossing. And when people just voluntarily come up to you and say that, then I think that you know that the tournament um, has been a success, just from the organisers' point of view, but also the broadcasters, you know, when they chose to televise every single match. Uh, and I think it really has captured the imagination of not only cricket lovers, but perhaps people who weren't cricket lovers before this tournament. As someone who watches uh, women's cricket, I mean, I'm not one who uh, gets in-depth into the performances and stuff. I looked at Australia and I thought they're going to be uh, hard to beat and, and it was almost predictable that they won the final. They're a very, very good side, aren't they? Oh, oh they are... I admire them so much. I think that you know they've been on a they've been on a single mission since they got bundled out of the 2017 World Cup in England when they performed well below their expectations. And what I really admire, um, what I admire them for is at that point they really um, sort of went back to the drawing board and they they thought we want to play a different brand of cricket here. And so that, that was the time that um, that they uh, said to Alyssa Healy, look, we we would like you to. Uh, open at the top of the order because in that tournament she was generally coming in you know number six or seven and so they basically just developed a blueprint for how they wanted to play their cricket going forward and I think um, they have a lot of competition within their side which is as we you know any sports team would know is a it's the most healthy thing when you can get uh, a lot of competition I think that having the women's big bash league in Australia helps them immensely because um, all of those players even though it's in the T20 format they're still you know they're still playing cricket day in day and out day out against stern opposition and I think that that's probably helped them as well but I uh, but I think that their whole team bought into the uh, the blueprint of how they wanted to be for the next five years, and they just they they expect they expect excellence. Um, you know, they have a team first policy, probably you know, but like the All Blacks have done, and I think that you know all the rewards that they have achieved, they they really deserve them. And I, and as a as a cricket lover, I don't I don't actually care which team it is that wins, but as a cricket lover, I have immense respect for their skill. And I think, to a certain extent, they've raised the bar for the women's game, haven't they? They've lifted it to, to a level where other sides are now going to have to try and attain. And, and is that the the reason why they've been so good? 
Oh, I, I, I agree with you. I think that they really have raised the bar, um, and and I think that they've laid down the challenge for all other cricketing nations to say, well, this is how we go about it, and now you know, see if you can follow. And um, other countries, uh, you know, it's a great challenge to have because you know, regardless of whether you may or may not have as much money as Australia puts into it, or whether you have the same type of competition, um, I, I, every other country can still, I think, uh, raise, the, raise the bar for their own standard of play. There's, there's lots of things you, you can do. Money is not everything. Um, but I think that they've been a shining example of what you can do when you, when you just tick all the boxes and do everything right. The other thing, too, that was significant was the quality of the pitches that were played on. I mean, they were top-quality pitches right around the country, weren't they? Oh, without, without question. And that, that comment was made many, many times, and, and, and it's nice that we can publicly acknowledge that in those six cities that the tournament was played in, not, not only the pitches were terrific, but also the outfields as well. I also really like the fact that we did not have short boundaries. I think that really added a lot more elements um, of sort of intrigue into the games. But you're quite right that I think that... Uh, I think that this might have been the second highest World Cup in terms of total runs scored. But there's no question that with women's cricket, because of our lack of height and strength compared to, say, the guys that when we're playing, because we because we don't generally bowl the ball as quick, we have to have good pitches so that um, the runs can flow. Because if you play on slow, low pitches, it's it's dreadful as a player and it's dreadful to watch. And and. Uh, just in terms of talking about the grounds as well, I think that the the efforts that the grounds people went to get all of those games um, going was wonderful, and the, because there was only one match and those whole 31 that was actually rained out, and uh, an example would be the Seddon Park ground staff for the match West Indies versus uh, Pakistan, uh, which was the the first. Pakistan win in the World Cup tournament it was a reduced overs match, but that ground was under water the day that I saw it, and the ground staff were out there with their squeegee mops. Just, you know, it was like a, it was like tidal waves. Um, and I think that the the effort oh. that the ground staff went in to make sure that those grounds were available to play was terrific. And also, just on one final note with that, I think that the willingness of the teams to play in sort of inclement conditions sometimes was also a testament to the fact of just wanting to get the games played. Yes, Australia, the worthy champions at the end, I suppose the downside from New Zealand's point of view was that New Zealand didn't feature even in the last four, and I guess that is a major disappointment. A huge disappointment. I think that there would be no one more disappointed than the players and the support staff themselves, but certainly, you know, when you're playing in your, in your own country, when you don't, don't have an opportunity to uh, have a World Cup here very often, I think that they would be bitterly disappointed. Uh, you know, I was certainly bitterly disappointed for them. And yes, no, no doubt there will need to be um, a lot of questions asked uh, about going forward from here. Uh, you know, how can we get the best out of the White Ferns side? Because I think, you know, finishing sixth in a tournament of eight teams, there's no other word for describing other than disappointing. Yeah, I guess you have to go back and review it, and that's for another time and another place when other people will be involved. But you see positive signs for the uh, New Zealand game? 
Uh, yes, I do. I think that um, we're looking to looking to get more structure below, you know, this top level of white ferns, and I think that that's really, really critical um, to any country. You know, look, with having a, an under nineteen program, the under nineteen Women's World Cup is to be held for the first time next year. So uh, that's where a lot of um, our focus needs to be now on uh, on making sure that we develop up-and-coming players for the time when they get their opportunity. Many thanks to Debbie Hockley, who was one of the television commentators, and certainly a uh, tournament that I think a lot of people uh, enjoyed. Uh, there certainly was a uh, captive audience because there wasn't a lot of other cricket going on as well, and uh, the performances of the teams basically got uh, New Zealanders involved initially on television, and then, of course, a little bit later on, they were able to go to the grounds, Jerry. But it finished up, I think, in the appropriate way in terms of the strength of the side, won by uh, Australia, quite clearly uh, the dominant side in women's cricket. Yeah, I think uh, as a general comment, Wads, I'd say a very good tournament um, for the advancement of the women's game. Um, it's not easy to put on eight, eight team tournament from around the world during COVID. And, and I think Debbie made the point, uh, and you did as well, about good conditions. Um, and that's, you know, that's, it was getting later in the New Zealand season and uh, it, it, the pitches enabled shots to be played and runs to be scored. 18 scores in excess of 250, which is good. And the usual boundaries not brought in at all. Um, so some tight games. Obviously, we've talked about that. Some good individual performances, um, which we want to see. But it would have been a terrific seven-team tournament, wouldn't it? But Australia, mm. unfortunately, were just so much better than every other side. It was a bit chastening, actually, for the other sides. Um, they've now got seven World Cup titles. And the gulf between them and the rest, you could argue it was great to have a team like that for women's cricket. Maybe not quite so good for the tournament where you ideally you want loads and loads of competitive games, but it could be a while, you would have to say, before the sides, the other sides, are able to breach that gap between themselves and Australia. You hope that Australia will drag everybody else up that brings to an end this week's program. I've got a job for you for next week. I want you to sit down and organise your uh, squad for the test matches in England because um, they're heading off there very shortly. And as Gary said, said they'll probably be uh, naming in the next 10 days or so a squad. So could you sit yourself down and uh, sort out a squad for us? Well, I'll get out of my tractor. That'll be good, Wads. So... Um... I can do that, and I would like... All right, we'll get yourself a good little uh, local shardy and, and write down so that you can read them again. I don't want them to be scribbled in uh, an untidy hieroglyphic or anything like that so that we can deal with it next week. All right? I'll do it, Wads. I'll do it. Yeah. That'll be good, good on fun. you, Jerry. Join us again next week when we go on the front foot. Goodbye. For the wonderful days of summer,